You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is Dr. Rachel Milner. Rachel is a fat positive psychologist and activist certified eating disorder specialist, and certified body trust provider. She specializes in working with adolescents and adults with all forms of eating disorders and those wanting to break free from diet culture. In this episode, we talk about the value of community as a coping skill, and we also dive into reaching out for help and how to be supportive of your loved ones going through recovery. One thing I really appreciate about this interview is that Rachel shares ideas for coping that go beyond what we all typically hear, such as journaling and breathing techniques. So I promise you are going to learn something new today. And with that being said, please enjoy this episode of the show. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, yeah, it's so exciting to have you here. I love your work. You're such an inspiration to me, and I, I'm so excited to connect you with my listeners. I think it will be a great opportunity for them. Yeah, I'm glad to have the opportunity to chat today. Wonderful. So before we dive in into today's topic, which I'd love to talk about coping skills with you, I would love to hear more about your own personal journey. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in a family that was very focused on thinness as a value and there was a lot of weight stigma. I was a kid who was in a larger body, but that was my perception. And I was definitely bigger than a lot of my peers. So there was a lot of focus on my weight. And over time, that developed into an eating disorder. Different times, I've struggled both with binge eating disorder and with anorexia. My experience was that when my anorexia started, I was in a higher weight body. And so got a lot of praise in the beginning where for me with my anorexia, I did lose weight and that's not always the case. There are lots of people with anorexia and fat bodies and their bodies don't change. But my experience was that I did lose weight and for a long period of time, there was a lot of praise and encouragement. Mm. And then it was only when I was in a more emaciated body that then it was recognized as an eating disorder and I was able to get help. I was fortunate because I was in graduate school during that time and I had already done some of my own kind of searching around and Mm -hmm. discovered Marilyn Wan's book, Fatso. Mm -hmm. And that kind of opened the door to me for understanding a little bit more about health at every size and 
that liberation. And so even though I couldn't apply it to myself yet, because I was still really in my eating disorder, it at least planted seeds that when I was in a place of working on healing, I was able to come back to. That's so amazing that you were able to come across that book and at least have it in the back of your mind. And you were able to return to that to help you with your healing process. Do you feel like when you went from your own perceived larger body to a thinner body, what was that like for you? And did you know when you were in a larger body with an eating disorder that it was an actual eating disorder or were you in denial of that? Yeah, that was an interesting part of it. I absolutely knew. And I was very private about it in my personal life. But when I would go to healthcare providers, I was actually pretty direct and open and they still were praising me for it. So like, I might go into my primary care doctor who would notice my weight loss and ask me and I'd say, well, I think I have an eating disorder and the response would still be just keep doing what you're doing because of anti-fat bias and weight stigma. So even knowing that I had an eating disorder, the weight stigma and anti-fat bias of a lot of providers prevented them from even hearing me when I told them this is what's going on. Wow. That's so scary. How did you feel when you're in that situation? I felt angry. I remember feeling really angry and frustrated. I think part of me was so open about it because even though I was still in the middle of my own struggle, I had enough awareness and understanding of weight stigma and of the ways that it has harmed lots of other people that I still felt a sense of wanting to like advocate in a way, even though at the time I was not ready to get help. Like I was very clear that I was not ready for it, but I think that's why I was so open in that environment about having an eating disorder. And it really pissed me off when people responded with that kind of weight stigma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so frustrating because they're invalidating your experience and you're being as direct and clear as possible. And I'm sure so many people experience that even now. What did your family think? I know you said you were in a family that valued thinness. Yeah, they also gave a lot of praise and positive feedback in the initial parts of my anorexia. So it was this kind of, as I was losing weight in the anorexia, a lot of praise and compliments, even though I was very clear that I didn't want them. So I was trying very hard to set boundaries and saying like, do not comment on my body, but that was not always respected. And uh, this was partly my immediate family, but really like my extended family too. And some other just people in my life in general, eventually it was like, there's some line that feels very arbitrary and I don't know how it was defined, but like that I crossed from a body size where weight loss was being praised to a body size where there was a lot of panic when I was continuing to lose weight. And so at that point, my family really did start to mobilize and recognize that I was really in trouble and tried to take action to help. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I'm hearing something so fascinating, which is when you are in a larger body and you had your eating disorder, there was like this anger. There was an activist inside of you trying to be loud about what was happening. But then you also shifted into a much smaller body and continued with the eating disorder, which obviously the eating disorders aren't a choice, but there's a conflict I feel between this activist who wants to be in the body she's naturally meant to be in. And then somebody who's striving for weight loss. So what was that internal struggle like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that activist or advocate was always there. It's just a part of who I am. And there was that internal battle between who I am and wanting to fit in with and conform Mm -hmm. to the people around me. Because what I was told is that Ness would bring love and happiness and connection and success and all of those things. And I didn't really have a deep understanding at that point that that was a lie. It was Mm -hmm. like, well, let me see if that's true because that's what I've been told my whole life. And I hadn't at that point ever experienced being in a very thin body. So I was like, maybe they've all been telling me the truth and this is what thinness offers. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. very quickly found out that it's a lie and Mm -hmm. thinness doesn't offer any of those things. In fact, I felt terrible and was more self-conscious and hated my body more when I was emaciated than I ever did in a larger body. But it was sort of like I had to find it out for myself in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, like you said, it wasn't a choice, but that is kind of how it played out. Mm -hmm. I can completely see how you're like, well, I might as well test the waters and see if what I've been buying into is actually legit or not. Maybe there is like these promises are real and maybe I can experience that. And I'm glad to hear that you quickly woke up to the lies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to grapple with. I think for a lot of people, because we're indoctrinated into this culture that tells us thinness is sort of the ultimate achievable. Like that's the the achievement. Like that's the thing we're supposed to be seeking. And so we've got that message from such a young age even if it's not within your family system, you're getting it from the culture as a whole. So I think there's like a reckoning that has to happen around realizing that we've been lied to and how much pain there is in spending, whether you have an eating disorder or not, but spending so much time and energy in the pursuit of thinness and then recognizing the waste of all that time. And it's time that we can't get back and how sad that is and how infuriating that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So infuriating and frustrating. And it reminds me of something I read on your website, which is you believe that prescribing dieting is unethical. And I wanted to hear you expand on that a little bit, because we know that dieting is incorrect and unhelpful, but I've never heard anyone speak to the ethics directly. And I was hoping you could share on that. I think we know that dieting is one of the biggest risk factors for Mm. developing an eating disorder. And so to me, prescribing dieting isn't any different than prescribing an eating disorder. So 
if you said to most people, is it ethical to tell somebody to develop an eating disorder, they would say no. And yet we've got sort of this like normalizing of recommending dieting, but they're not really any different. If you say to somebody, you should diet, you're telling them to do something that puts them at very high risk of Mm -hmm. developing an eating disorder. And then I think, you know, as healthcare providers, most of us, at least certainly I do as a psychologist, we have ethics that include not allowing our own biases to cause harm and to not perpetuate stigma. And when you're recommending dieting, you're colluding with weight stigma and with anti-fat bias. And so I think that goes against the ethics of our profession. Mm -hmm. So true. And I think you're completely right when you know that prescribing a diet can easily become an eating disorder. You're essentially asking someone to take on disordered behaviors and Potentially that would evolve very quickly into something that is eating disorder. So really interesting. And I'm glad you make that so clear, right? (laughs) You're like, there is no difference between prescribing a diet and prescribing an eating disorder. Yeah. And I, I think there's another layer to it also is that quote unquote success rate of Diets are maybe 5% of people that go on diets lose weight and keep the weight off for two to five years or more. And if we were talking about most other interventions and I said to somebody, this intervention has a 95% failure rate and is like the risk of it is very high, but I want to recommend it to somebody most people, medical boards would be like, no, that's not ethical. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what happens with diets. We're recommending an intervention that fails 95 plus percent of time and has super high risks associated with it. Mm -hmm. I love that perspective. It's just so clear when you put it that way. It's like you wouldn't recommend a surgery that has a 95% failure rate. Like that's just right. completely unsafe. So yeah, I think exactly. that's helpful to view it that way for sure. But anyway, I did want to dive into the subject of coping for eating disorders. And as you know, um, eating disorders are considered a maladaptive coping mechanism. We usually use them to like numb out our emotions and feel a false sense of control. And they can typically come like automatic, like our ED behaviors become the automatic coping skill for our emotions. And so my first question for you is, why do you think it's so difficult for people to break free from leaning on those eating disorder behaviors to cope? So I think I maybe have a different perspective on eating disorder behaviors and maybe not different, but I I think I conceptualize it in a a little bit of a different way in that I think about all coping being rooted in wisdom. And so if we're turning to ways of coping, even if they are harmful, so yes, we know that eating disorder behaviors are harmful and dangerous, that we're still, the reasons that we're turning to them are rooted in wisdom. And so I think that part of what makes it hard to move away from them, 
well, one of many reasons that it's hard to is that if we've turned to certain coping for very wise reasons and we haven't learned other ways of coping yet, we're going to keep turning Mm -hmm. to the coping that we know Mm -hmm. until we are able to heal into a place where we know something different. Mm. So can you expand on the wisdom there? Because I can hear so many people being like, how is it wise to use an eating disorder behavior, right? Like, so I'm curious on if you can expand there. Yeah. So even like when you were talking about the idea of numbing out. So if somebody has had trauma and their trauma is really overwhelming and they're having a lot of, let's say, anxiety as a response, or they're having flashbacks or something like that, you know, turning to an eating disorder to numb out may give them some relief from the anxiety and from those flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So there's wisdom in wanting to protect yourself from that anxiety or those flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And turning to an eating disorder is harmful and dangerous. So we want to help people have more skill for how to cope with the anxiety and those flashbacks. But when somebody hasn't had that support yet or learned those skills, it's still wise to find ways to cope that Mm -hmm. it's sort of like until you do the best you can until you know better and then you do better, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. so sometimes the eating disorder is what people have available to them at that particular time. Absolutely. It's like that question that you, a therapist might ask, which is what is the unintended benefit of the eating disorder. You know, there's that protection piece, which is a very wise, unintended use of the eating disorder, right? You're like trying to protect yourself from something. And I love that perspective because it builds a bit of self-compassion when you think about why do I have this eating disorder in the first place? Yeah, there's already so much shame and blame that happens with eating disorders. And so I think anything that can move us away from shame and blame can be really helpful because we know that healing doesn't happen from a place of shame or from a place of blame. So if we're stuck in this space of shaming ourselves or blaming ourselves for our eating disorder, healing isn't going to happen from that space. But if we can have compassion and understanding around our eating disorder, there's way more space for healing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I completely agree. So when people build up this wisdom and they recognize and they build the awareness around the usefulness of their eating disorder, and we put usefulness in quotes there, how do you start to pull away from using the eating disorder, leaning on it as a coping skill and breaking into something else. Cause what I find a lot is that is so difficult for many people to do because they're so used to leaning on the eating disorder. So we're making suggestions, right? Like try journaling, try meditation, do some breathing techniques. It feels like almost the impact isn't as strong or it's not as helpful to those when they're first trying to make that switch. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's so much fear and pain and mixed emotions and guilt, like so much there when somebody is initially 
trying to take some steps in the direction of healing from an eating disorder. And so that's where I think having a lot of compassion and understanding is important. One of the things I like to work on with people is how can they locate the problem outside of their body? And so I think eating disorders are about a lot more than fear of weight gain or body size or things like that. But that's often what is kind of focused on in session that people express that as a fear, whatever size body they're in. And so I like to help people recognize that their body has never been the problem. The problem is the culture. And so trying to externalize rather than internalize and to be able to name that the things we were taught are untrue. Your body has never been a problem, but you live in a culture that is a problem. And so let's put responsibility on the culture and not blame your body for Mm -hmm. developing the eating disorder or wanting to protect yourself from weight stigma. I think some for a lot of people with eating disorders, they've got a trauma history. And so supporting people in doing trauma work where they can work on healing from the trauma. I think often we have to support people in taking small steps because that's what is possible. Can you challenge the eating disorder today? And let's come up with a plan for what that might look like and talk about how that feels and not be trying to do so much at once because that can be so overwhelming for Mm -hmm. folks. You know, I wish that everybody had access to treatment that was validating and affirming and non-stigmatizing. And unfortunately, that's not the case because of financial barriers, because treatment is often still fat phobic, because it's just not always financially accessible. Like there's just so many reasons that people can't always seek treatment. And so sometimes we have to think about harm reduction and we're working outpatient with somebody who really would benefit from a higher level of care and that's not possible. So we're having to think about supporting people in taking these steps to be even a little safer and then continuing to take steps as they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is such a gentle, delicate process and so different for every single person. Yes. And so is that kind of what you're getting at is that sometimes like using a coping skill isn't necessarily applicable right away. There's a lot more trauma to unpack and looking at the bigger picture externally, all that education might be helpful before you do that. Yeah, I always want to hold validating coping skills when they're helpful. Like, absolutely. If journaling is helpful or taking some deep breaths or whatever is helpful and is not harmful as a coping skill, I really support and of course want people to do it. I think that where individual coping skills fall short is that they don't address like the more systemic issues, Hmm. right? So like journaling can be really helpful as getting some feelings out and coping individually. It doesn't address like systemic weight stigma, 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm always hesitant to put all of the responsibility on an individual. Yeah. And yes, we all need coping skills, right? Like we all need ways to cope in our day-to-day lives because yeah. the world is hard and there's a lot to cope with. And mm-hmm. so of course we all need things that we can turn to that help us get through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it framed that way. First of all, I totally hear you're acknowledging the value of individual coping skills, but I've never heard it framed in the way that that puts a lot on a person to just turn to these individual skills and a way to relieve that pressure that that person has is by looking at the systemic issues. Yeah, I think we've got to keep working on locating the problem outside of the individual. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where recognizing like the larger systemic issues is so important. I also think like getting creative around what coping looks like, because I think there's like individual coping skills, but there's also community care and how can we show up for each other in a way that doesn't leave us coping on our own. And so I think that's another way that we can have strategies for coping that aren't just left to the individual. Mm -hmm. I love that. I know you've mentioned that community can be considered a coping skill. So how might that look like Like, what might that look like in someone's recovery journey? One thing I can speak to in my own experience around this as somebody who has healed from an eating disorder and is in a fat body is that having fat positive community has been essential to my healing. Like, I can't imagine trying to recover from an eating disorder in a fat body without having fat community because it's affirming. It's a space where, you know, when inevitably you encounter weight stigma in the world, you can turn and be like, this happened and that everybody in the community is going to be like, that is so messed up. I'm so sorry that happened. You know, it's a space where you don't have to apologize for body size. It's a space where you're going to be celebrated and, you know, that doesn't exist always in the outside world, so to speak. So having that community, I think is really important. And I think it's especially important for people with marginalized identities, but I think community as a way to cope is important for most people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to speak on that too, because I have thin privilege. I'm like thin white I live in a smaller body and I even find turning to the fat acceptance spaces and body liberation spaces to be very relieving and affirming for me because it was able to point out my own fat phobias that were keeping me stuck in my eating disorder. And when you are exposed to a community that's like all accepting and loving of all bodies, it it still is a home for people, I feel like of all sizes, even if you are in a smaller body. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we can get a little lost in these conversations around body liberation, but the reminder that I think we need to keep coming back to is that when the fattest bodies are liberated, all bodies are liberated, Mm -hmm. right? So when we're fighting for fat liberation of the most marginalized 
when that happens, we're all free. And so I think that's why, you know, it's when you're describing your own experience that of being feeling affirmed and it helping you to confront your own internalized weight stigma, you know, there's that feeling there of like, oh, this is what's possible. Mm-hmm. Like liberation is actually real and possible. Mm-hmm. So true. It's really amazing and helpful to see the liberation of people in larger bodies because it does fight against the diet culture that has just been so deeply embedded in my mind. I'm really appreciative of the movements out there. Community can be considered a coping skill, which I love. And I know in recovery, even community on like a micro level, which is like reaching out to your immediate, like supportive family members and friends could be really useful. Yes. I think the vast majority of us cannot recover in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, we need people around us and mm-hmm. we need connection. Mm-hmm. And I know for people for whom that was a beloved pet, you know, like that was really helpful. Even they'd make their dinner and give their dog dinner and that was their kind of meal companion. So all of us are different in what kind of connections work for us. But mm-hmm. I think most of us cannot heal from an eating disorder without some sort of community Mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. What was the experience like for you? Would you say you were more isolated at first or, you know, how did you come across community in your own recovery? That's a good question. So I was definitely more isolated at first, primarily because I had so much secrecy around my eating disorder. So I had kind of pushed a lot of people away because I didn't want them to know about my eating disorder or I didn't want them to challenge me around it. And so I had created some distance. I was really fortunate. My friends that I had pushed away were very eager and willing to reconnect and support for me. I think I was timing. I was already finished with graduate school and so like in the mental health field. And so I started to develop relationships with other providers that were more radical providers who I could be open with and knew that they would accept me and not be judgmental of me. And I think the more I was ready for healing, the more I built my community. I think that's a really nice way to put it. And I completely relate to that. Like when you are not ready for healing, it's the time where you want to just isolate and be alone and hide your behaviors and hide your problems. And that reflects my own experience as well as like when I finally opened up to healing, I was able to start letting people back in. Yeah. And I think I found the people who would text every so often and just say like, I'm here, I'm thinking of you when you're ready. So those reminders I found really helpful because it was sort of like a lifeline, even though I wasn't quite in a place yet where I was ready to like really engage, it still felt really helpful to me to know that there were people there when I was ready. So I think I'm wanting to name that because I don't want to discourage anybody from checking in with a friend or a family member or colleague who has an eating disorder. I think it's just about 
what you say when you check in. Mm. What would be an example of something that you wouldn't encourage people to say? Well, I think anything that is judgmental or like has an ultimatum to it, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. if you don't go to treatment right this minute, then I'm not going to, you know, be your friend anymore. Or if you don't respond to this in five days, then, you know, I'm going to have to end the friendship or things like specific questions around food or body size would not be questions to ask. I think really open-ended questions or not even questions, just statements of like thinking about you. I care about you. I'm here. I think those kinds of statements that are really caring and open, but not judgmental and don't require a response. Because I think sometimes when you're in your eating disorder, if somebody's like texting you questions and it's like the thought of responding is so overwhelming, but somebody just saying I'm here or I care, you can take that in, but don't have to respond if you're not able to. Mm -hmm. It's really a considerate approach that I'm glad you were able to articulate today because as someone who tends to isolate when I'm feeling shame or something's going on in my life, if someone were to reach out with questions, I would just throw my phone across the room and be like, not today. And then I'd forget to respond. And then I feel like a bad friend and it can get, I'm sure so many people can relate to that experience. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. So there is a value in checking in with individuals, you know, who are going through it and just being there, expressing that is just so helpful. And I I completely agree with that. That's really useful. What about people who have an eating disorder and they're afraid to reach out? Like what advice do you have for those who are afraid to connect to community and maybe just people in their immediate life? Yeah, I have so much compassion and empathy for people who are in that space because I know how hard of a space that can be. I think that this is actually, you know, we talk about like ways that social media is problematic. I think this can sometimes be a way that social media is helpful because you were naming earlier, like the fat liberation community. If somebody is in a place where they're really isolated and aren't quite ready to reach out, sometimes just looking at social media and being reminded of recovery and of a world outside of the eating disorder can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. So that could be a starting place. It's kind of like something you can do on your own in the comfort of your room. You don't have to actually interact with anybody, but it's just like opening yourself up a little bit to what's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Then I think finding somebody safe to talk to and that could be anybody. It doesn't like great if it's a therapist or a dietitian, but you know, finding whether it's a family member or a teacher or a guidance counselor or you know, whoever, somebody that feels like you can trust them and maybe start 
to let people know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it's hard. I really get how hard it is. Eating disorders are often not understood. We were talking earlier about the shame around eating disorders, but eating disorders also thrive in isolation. Mm-hmm. So connection is an antidote to that. And so I think like just taking those little risks one at a time of like trying to reach out, even if the reaching out is just, hey, how are you? Like, doesn't have to immediately be, let me talk about my eating disorder with you, but it can be, how's your day going? And that like starts a conversation. Mm -hmm. I completely agree because in the eating disorder recovery space, we're always encouraging our clients to reach out to others instead of leaning on their eating disorder. So as a coach, I offer people tech support. So if they're, they feel the urge to maybe restrict or use another behavior, they can reach out to me to quote, put the eating disorder out of the job. But I also encourage clients to start reaching out to friends and family who they trust. And I think sometimes they're thinking they have to say, I'm in crisis right now. Like I feel an urge to use my behaviors and that's so not true. You can just reach out for distraction and get yourself out of that headspace. Yeah. Yeah. I have found for a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders, there's a feeling of like worthlessness or that they don't deserve support. And I think sometimes that gets translated to if I'm not in crisis, I can't reach out for help. And mm-hmm. I think that reminder that you're offering your clients of like, you don't have to be in crisis to reach out and get support. Like you get to have support just because you're needing it. It doesn't need to be a crisis mm-hmm. or just because you want it, not even because you need it. Yeah, um, I think that reminder is really important. Mm-hmm. I used to work at a crisis line for like sexual assault okay. and... It was so interesting because being on the other end of the line, we were just so grateful that people would call us when they had questions, right? Like even if they weren't in crisis, we were just happy that people were reaching out and leaning on the resources that we had to offer. And so I always recommend like, you don't have to be in crisis to use those quote crisis lines necessarily. Sometimes it can be you know, you call to almost practice using that line. So if you are in crisis, it's easier to to access. And it's like, you're familiar with the process. Yes. I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. So do you have any other non-traditional forms of coping that you might recommend for people in the recovery space? I know we covered a lot already today. Non-traditional forms. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, what are what counts as traditional versus (laughs) non-traditional? So, one thing that's been really helpful for me is my activism. Mm -hmm. You know, I find that being an advocate or an activist is a really great way of channeling the anger or grief or all of those feelings and really I think helps helps me cope with some of the injustice and some of the things that I've internalized and so I think that can be helpful and another way to connect with community because usually if you're doing activism work you're going to have a community around you there's more and more books and tv shows now that really 
do center fat bodies anywhere near where we need it to be. Like there's still way more shows that don't center fat bodies, or if they do, it's focused on weight loss or something, but there are more options now. And I think watching that can be a great way to remind yourself of like body diversity and that people exist in all different sizes and always have and always will. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful. I have a question about that actually. Yeah. What shows do you recommend for people? Yeah. So Shrill is a great one. If you haven't watched Shrill, I would highly recommend it. I've just now been watching Lizzo's show. I think it's Lizzo's Make Way for the Big Girls, I think it's called. If you haven't seen it, I think it's on Amazon Prime and it is amazing. It's just, she's auditioning dancers to go on tour, but all the dancers are in fat bodies and it's just such Mm -hmm. a great show to watch. Yeah. So that's one. And then there's like some just, I don't know if you've seen, they just started like, I don't know, I'm a big Law & Order fan and they like revived the original Law & Order and Cameron Mannheim, who's an actress, is in it. And it's not about her. I mean, she's just a character in the show, but that's kind of the point. Like she's in a fat body. She's working as a investigator, I think. And like, that's that, right? Like it's not about her fatness, but just seeing positive representation of fat bodies is really important. And so I think finding it, finding those spaces where fat bodies are either portrayed positively or um, just existing in the world neutrally is really Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. So true. I remember watching Orange is the New Black for the first time. And I thought there was a lot of body diversity and racial diversity in there and also queerness and all, you know, ranges of sexuality. And for me, that was really amazing to watch, like when it first came out, because when you're not used to seeing different representations on the screen, when you finally get immersed into a show and you like love the characters and you, you're like, wow, this is, it's really helpful. And I didn't realize how helpful it would be when I started watching the show. Yes. I'm glad that you're naming that because I think sometimes we forget that even like what seems to be simple things are really helpful. Mm -hmm. Like it seems pretty simple to sit down and watch a TV show and you aren't even expecting the like added benefit of it being a way to cope. And I think sometimes we have this idea that coping needs to be this like huge thing and (laughs) it sometimes is as simple as turning on the TV. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And that's a really nice way to wrap this conversation (laughs) up. (laughs) So Rachel, can you please share with the listeners just where they can find you and access your work? Sure. I am on Instagram. I ventured onto Instagram like two years ago thinking I was going to hate it and I love it. Um, I just enjoy creating memes, which is so funny to me. But so my Instagram, it's just at Dr. Rachel Milner. And my website is rachelmilnertherapy.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And I have to comment, I love making memes too. <laughs> I call it meme therapy because it encourages humor. Yes. So for me, it's therapeutic to create memes. So I did not know that about you. I love that. (laughs) 
Yeah, I especially love, I mean, we're recording this on a Friday, but it seems like a lot of accounts on Fridays like post like funny memes that they have found throughout the week. And I'm always in awe of how creative some people are and like the things they come up with saying and mm-hmm. just enjoy mm-hmm. reading the humor, like you said. Yeah, amazing. Okay, Rachel. Well, I really appreciate you and the work you're doing. And thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the show. I wanted to remind you that the free 14 Days of Healing Challenge with Project Heal and the Recovery Collective starts on May 1st. This live two-week event is designed to support you in taking baby steps towards healing every single day. And you can download a free workbook to guide you through the process. Check out the show notes to snag your free workbook and stay connected with us on social media. We are so excited for you to be a part of this and I can't wait to see you at the events. 